we could shift how we grow food in a regenerative manner and return that instead of emitter of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions and and all the potential problems with fertilizers, we could be part of the solution through soil health. I had known some of those things individually or the concept, but I'd never seen it all put together. I was literally for the next six months, I walked around a bit stunned, like, how is it that the climate movement, how is it that every major environmental organization, how is it even that the organic farming movement and the natural food industry has no interest in soil health, has no interest in organic regenerative farming as a solution for climate change. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another great episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, and today I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to a giant in the world of regenerative agroforestry. He's responsible for so much in this space, and that is John Rolak. John is a hemp innovator, serial entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, and writer. As the 1999 founder of the organic superfoods brand Nativa, he has sourced and formulated $1 billion in retail sales of organic superfoods in the past 20 years. He is also an executive producer of the Netflix blockbuster in the regenerative agriculture space called Kiss the Ground, which is narrated by Woody Harrelson. John has founded six nonprofit organizations, including Great Plains Regeneration, Agroforestry Regeneration Communities, ARC, and Forest Forever. John Rulak, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Karina, on your show today. Just an honor to have you here. I've had the pleasure of interviewing people in the space of regenerative agriculture a few times on my other podcast, Care More Be Better, including our mutual friend, Paul Hawken. I'd like to just get started here and first ask you, what does this concept of nutrition without compromise mean to you? That's a provocative name. Nutrition is so important. And if you can do it without compromising uh, planet or your health, I think that's very important. You have been an environmentalist for what seems like your whole life. I'd love to know what got you started as a young environmentalist. I would say two events set me on, a, on the path I am today. One, my parents were a bit different than most people. Some people collect cars or rare art or things like that. My parents decided to collect small remote islands. With it, I have a collection of those. My mom and dad bought a three-acre island when I was just a little kid in the Pacific Northwest. I had no running water, no electricity. I spent a lot of time playing in the tide pools, playing among the tall trees, being in a very beautiful, lovely nature as it was back in the 1960s. Things have degraded a lot, but things degraded 1600 versus 1960 still. It changed massively. And uh, unfortunately, it's been for the worse of late. That definitely set me up to see things a little differently. We went there in the summers and then during the rest of the year, I lived in uh, the Pasadena, California area, which at the time had no pollution control systems in the 1960s. So it was hard to breathe, very smoggy, painful just to breathe in oxygen. And so going from food, that was in Southern California, 10 miles from like downtown LA, 10 months in a very polluted environment, two months 
in a very blissful, clean environment. And that difference definitely juxtaposition influenced me. And then when I was 21, unidentified truck driver dumped nuclear waste nine miles from my house. And that really pissed me off when I was 21. Back then, we didn't have the internet, but we had a lot of people listen to radio and the radio DJ talked about it every day, I think for a week. That set me on my life journey was how do we live on this planet in an ecological way, in a more healthy way? And I combined that with business and campaigns and 40 plus years later, here I am. Here we are. You've spent a long time working in the natural channel like myself and ultimately building responsible food brands that use organic and regenerative means of bringing their products to market. I'd love for you to talk for a moment about what you're doing differently in this space. I see the brand Nativa today is also championing a lot of social causes and environmental causes. I'd just love to know how you see kind of this branded responsibility. Like when you're creating a product, how do you envision a future that can be regenerative in the space of business? Just a little background. I founded Nativa in 1999. You know, we grew it right place at the right time, grew it very rapidly, helped pioneer hemp foods, helped pioneer coconut. And then I stepped down as CEO four or five years ago. I'm actually not, don't really have much to do with the company anymore at this point. In terms of brands, business can be a force for good. Business can be part of the solution. It can be good for people. It can be good for the planet. It can be good for profits. Sometimes people pay attention only to profits and then people and, and the planet suffer. And same time, sometimes people overly focus in business, sometimes just on the social side, and they forget about the bottom line, and then their business doesn't do so well. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face in that case. And one thing I would say that was for me that I think was successful, that I think I did well, or some things I didn't do as well. We all learn when you're an entrepreneur, you have this journey and you learn what you're good at and some things and you're not as good and you hopefully you surround you with people who compliment you there. I really focused on the why and culture. And in the why is there's lots of people who can sell cooking oil in a jar. And if people thought that's what the business we were in, then we wouldn't have much of a business. It'd be a commodity essentially. Yeah. As I ran business, you know, our goal was to revolutionize the way the world eats. And we did that in many ways. You know, when we came to the city of Richmond, California, we put in a fruit tree orchard at every public school. We helped fund the movie Kiss the Ground, you know, with the first $30,000 to fund that and help leverage that and did a lot of different campaigns and things. And then the second thing we focused on was culture. When I was initial, I just said, well, if I just work really hard and hire a few smart people and have a good time and we're going to do well. But then once I started getting above 10 or 15 people, I realized that the team and the culture was going to be so important. I kind of freaked out reading about books where people would, entrepreneurs would show up and there'd be a couple hundred people in the company. They walk around, they go, I don't even know who these people are. I don't know why they were hired. I didn't want to see that happen. So we put a lot of focus on culture and really creating the right environment. Brand can be an expression, hopefully of, of a better future and, and a better possibility. And if you're successful at that, it can be financial rewarding, but also you can make a difference in the world. And we need that more. I like to say today, we need more green and a lot less washing. Totally agree. Let's talk more about your work with Kiss the Ground. 
You mentioned briefly that it was with Nutiva that you were able to initially start that first $30,000 that would fund its beginnings. I'd like to know a little bit more about how that came to be. I understand Woody Harrelson ended up being the voice that narrated it. I've enjoyed the film on Netflix. I also know that there's a podcast of the same name. I'd just love for you to talk about your involvement and really what people can expect if they take the time to go and watch that film. Around 2013 or 14, I saw a presentation by an old friend of mine and a kind of a mentor of me in the food space, Will Allen from Vermont. His presentation showed that degenerative agriculture, industrial agriculture, was one of the largest contributors of greenhouse gas emissions. It was making huge impacts in the environment negatively, and that we could shift how we grow food in a regenerative manner and return that instead of emitter of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions and and all the potential problems with fertilizers, we could be part of the solution through soil health. I had known some of those things individually or the concept, but I'd never seen it all put together. I was literally for the next six months, I walked around a bit stunned, like, how is it that the climate movement, how is it that every major environmental organization, how is it even that the organic farming movement and the natural food industry has no interest in soil health, has no interest in organic regenerative farming as a solution for climate change. I was just like, am I in some strange reality where it seems so obvious? Like in 2014, we saw the signs of potential erratic weather, the CO2 levels from burning fossil fuels and et cetera. After a while, I decided I'd just do a film. We started on that film. And so I was like, okay, I got to meet the filmmaker. So I went on a, a journey to find filmmaker and I met Josh and Rebecca from Ojai, they took the ball and ran with it in an amazing way and farther than I could have even imagined. And uh, it was great to support them. And Woody did a great job on the narration. It took like six years to do the film and it almost didn't work. I'm pretty pleased. A lot of people have seen it. And there's a new film out called Common Ground that's going to come out this next year. That's going to be filmmakers reminding me, they said, John, this is going to be, it's not going to be quite so nice. It's not going to be quite so optimistic. I mean, we've lost 75% of all winged insects, and that's from industrial agriculture. We've lost 60% of the plankton in the ocean, and both the insects and the plankton, we're losing 1% to 2% a year. We really need to kind of woke up from this nightmare of destroying nature. And the irony is that the power structure, and thing people need to understand, food is a bigger industry than the internet. And big food and big pharma, their number one tool is essentially mind control and essentially black hat PR. They have lots of diversions. The most effective diversion they've made in the last five years is they've invented an entire new term for destroying the planet of a category of foods, of industrial foods, spraying pesticides, made of GMOs, destroying soils, killing all sorts of wildlife. And they've called it, they've come up with this word called plant-based. It's one of the most brilliant things that Monsanto and Bayer and World Bank and Bill Gates and Al Gore and just go on down the list have come up with. And people believe it. Now, back in the day, I remember old school vegans were like, they were a lot of my customers. Yeah, we want healthy, organic food. We don't want to harm any animals and we want it to taste good and we want it to be full of nutrients and we don't want any Monsanto chemicals. But now they're eating the Impossible Burger made of highly processed foods. And they've lied so well that even the most hardcore vegans, with rare exceptions, 
will never say one bad word about impossible. It's like they're a member of the card-carrying member of the Communist Party. And to say anything would be considered, well, it ends justify the means. And so I'll give you an example of the misinformation. In the last three years, how many times has the New York Times or The Guardian or Bloomberg said that cows and methane are causing problems for the planet? It's all over the news constantly. When is the last time those same publications said that the emissions from synthetic chemical fertilizer plants is the fastest growing greenhouse gas emission is very toxic and is very bad for our environment? They never mention it. And the thing is about the methane for the cows, it's really just a diversion. The life of methane is around 10 to 12 years. After the cow releases methane, in the same way with buffalo and same way with antelopes and deer and other animals all over the world, there was no problem with methane from buffaloes 150 years ago. And we had so many more of them. And they were much bigger than cows. It's really a misdirection. I think that people, they negate the fact that a cow actually creates healthy soil. This very closely connects to your work with Kiss the Ground. I abut an open space preserve, my home in Scotts Valley. In that open space preserve, they have essentially regenerative farming cows. The cows have to be on the land because they need rudiments. The rudiments leave behind their manure which regenerates the soil. They're rotated between many, many pastures. And the reason we need rudiments is because it's an open space preserve. They're working to preserve a species of grass, also a beetle who hunts by sight and a salamander. And the cow is actually incredibly effective at helping to maintain the ecosystem so that all of these species can thrive. It's a regenerative approach. These cows, yes, they're producing some methane, but they're eating fresh grass. They're eating grass that's growing out of the ground as opposed to something else. Ultimately, that means that long-term, they're healthier, the soil is healthier, the environment, the ecosystem that they support is healthier. And this is a way we can head forward. And you cover this in Kiss the Ground. I was falling in love with some of these farmers who are taking on the mantle and taking the risks and then showcasing over the course of five years that their land was holding more water, that they were able to produce the same sort of product, but without ultimately sacrificing their entire harvest because there was a drought. So, I mean, these are things that we need to think about. Recently seen that Sadhguru, who is an incredible thought leader in the spiritual space, he's got all over his Twitter feed. His entire banner is about saving soil. I actually visited his ashram when I went to India when I was hunting for coconuts. I venture to guess you had an effect on him deciding to take this on. Yeah, I, I never met him before, but I've heard him speak a couple of times. But yeah, he's quite interesting character, you know, big fan of soil health. I'll give you an example of one of the powers of hoofed animals. And it's not just cows, it's sheep, it's buffalo. If you look at the area of the Chihuahua Desert in North Mexico, and then you look at vast parts of New Mexico, parts of Arizona, parts of West Texas, this used to be area full of grass, seasonal creeks, lots of wildlife. And over the last hundred years, we've turned it into a moonscape by overgrazing, poor management. And people go, oh, see, cows are bad. So the cows, have they've overgrazed it. There's a gentleman over there named Alejandro Carrillo. And matter of fact, he's going to be one of the stars in the new film, Common Ground, that's going to come out this next year. That's a fault to kiss the ground. His dad called him up 10 years ago and said, son, you need to come back to the ranch, 25,000 acres. And they only had a couple hundred cows. They had to bring in supplemental hay each year during the summertime. 
and things were not good. So he started studying, he met some people and and they basically now have a regenerative model where bunch of cows all together very tightly. And then this way that the cows stomp, they leave their manure, et cetera. And then they don't come back for another year to, to 14 months. What this does is it takes the grass. When they come back, the grass might could be a couple feet tall or you know foot tall, depending in, in some cases. Now, it's, it used to be only a few inches and now it's several feet. And so they'll eat down like two thirds of the grass. And then that other third will stay and they won't come back. And then this way, the, the grass puts its energy in, in the root system. If it's continuously grazing, it causes issues. Then he got his neighbors to do it and they have over 100,000 acres in their area. Recently, what happened, some of their distant, some neighbors in the distance got upset with them. And they said, you're stealing the rain. Because when the rain clouds come over, they come over this land of this 100,000 acres and drop the rain because there's a symbiotic relationship between rain clouds and the small water cycle and the grasses and vegetation. And so there's this intimate connection there. I mean, this is something that gave me the chills when I first learned it. It was the evaporative microbes that are in the actual evaporating water send signal to the rain clouds to release water. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. And the most important gas that impacts climate is not carbon. You see, we're microscopic, narrow casting only on carbon. Carbon is bad. Carbon is this, carbon is that. And we forget about the water cycle. We forget about water vapors. That's what's driving these massive amounts of rainstorms and things. By working with the living root regeneration, we can take that excess water and store it in the ground because healthy soil is like a sponge. So we can bring that water back. But the reality is, again, people, it's easy. Brainwashing is very effective. Like Hitler showed is very effective. And today, people have been brainwashed, especially people in the urban and liberal people, they're convinced that the enemy is cows and oil drilling. Just saying that people freak out, oh, you're denying climate change. Burning oil and coal, obviously, is causes pollution and we need less pollution. But the reason why we're having many of these problems, a big portion of that is this excess water. If we, through regeneration, not only we can help the water cycle, but we also fix the carbon cycle at the same time. Because the root system can sequester carbon, because the forests themselves can go ahead and actually sequester carbon and give us food and other resources as well, like oxygen. But there isn't enough space that's been essentially allowed to regenerate. You talk about overgrazing of land. That is this perception we have of even farming with animals, that we would let them graze until all that's left is the roots. And not enough is left to ultimately sequester the carbon that the grass would otherwise be capable of doing. Now, I've read Paul Hawkins' Regeneration from cover to cover. And on my other podcast, Care More Be Better, I actually went through a deep dive chapter by chapter. And by doing that, I learned the information a lot more effectively. I was surprised to learn about the small water cycle itself and its impact on where water goes and where it doesn't. I also really found that one of those key elements that you're speaking of in, in a piece you wrote of how our waterways are effective, ultimately wanting to turn our waterways blue again. I'd like you to invite you to talk about this because it's not just how we use water, it's also how we farm with it. And then it's also the pesticides and the fertilizers and all of these things that we've grown used to using, which impact the clarity of the water that is in our riverbeds that ultimately feeds our water tables. 
Yeah, I wrote an article called Make America's Rivers Blue Again last year, published that in Substack. And before I get into that article, I, I want to go back to the Alejandro Carrillo, the cow whisperer from uh, Chihuahuan Desert. Now, whereas dad used to have 200, 250 cows, he now has 650 cows and donkeys and sheep, and he really could use a couple hundred more. He's increased the capacity for cows in the land by 4x. Some radical vegan says, those are magical cows. So they're just convinced. See, the story that Monsanto has told that the vegetarian community, not all, there's plenty of vegetarians, that vegans that I know that are supportive of regenerative agriculture, whether it's plant-based or animal-based. But a lot of fun for this is basically how do we feel, feed 9 billion people and we don't have enough land and we're running out of land. So we need to get rid of all the cows and do these giant steel vats to make cultured food, kind of a soil and green. And we need 500,000 times more of the capacity that we have for culturing and fermenting foods and liquids today. Where's all that steel going to come from? And then you have to plug it into a socket. And one of the things that I, that's going into this article is just for people to understand, regeneration runs on the today's sunlight. So the sun shines, it, through photosynthesis, it drives plants, plants and animal cycle. So that Chihuahuan rancher, all that beef was grown. There was no pesticides. There was no chemicals. There was no steel blacketed jank tank that they had to plug in and grow this for weeks at a time. Whereas degenerative agriculture runs on yesterday's sunlight, which is basically plants and animals that decompose into petrochemicals and oil that they process into petrochemicals. So which one do we want to run on? Today's sunlight or yesterday's sunlight? And the irony is that People have hijacked the vegan movement and they want to run on yesterday's sunlight. And anything that runs on today's sunlight that involves animals is evil and bad. In this article, essentially 200 years ago, the rivers are blue. They're technically not blue, but reflection from the light. And then the 1960s and 70s, the rivers were catching on fire, even in, in Ohio, brown, gray, from water, from soil washing away, from chemical fertilizers, pesticides, manure lagoons from CAFOs, confined animal feedlots, which are not, they're degenerative. And so then we said, well, let's clean up industrial waste. They gave agriculture a pass. The, these rivers, we've changed the color of the rivers. And when we apply the synthetic fertilizer, which is from fracked natural gas, and then it's injected into the ground. And then when it rains, that washes off and it washes off from the farm to a little creek, to a bigger creek, and then to a river and then to the ocean. It's discoloring all of that. And Regenerative agriculture restores our waterways and degenerative agriculture drifts away. The other interesting thing, like here in California, the leading professors and people who are well-meaning, they think that we should have less plant growth in the Sierras because that would absorb more water. So then there wouldn't be as much water. The San Joaquin Valley, we're running out of water. We should be restoring the watersheds in the Sierras right now. That's what Gavin Newsom and the, the leadership there, unfortunately, they're not that innovative. And there are people who are in the team that are working on that, but it's so bureaucratic. And then we can also slow the key with water flow on land is to slow it, spread it and sink it. This is what beavers do. If we did this in the Sierras and through small check dams and reintroducing beaver, and if you spent a billion or $2, we could do phenomenal things. But we're so locked into bringing water from distant areas. The Colorado River as the primary example. And people don't know this, but California will not be growing winter vegetables next year. 
It's a big deal because we actually produce more food than I think almost any other state. Yeah. In the Imperial Valley, they're not going to get access to the river water next year. They are farmers and ranchers who are working. I went to a regenerative almond field day in the Central Valley this past February. It actually really inspired me. There was a lot of farmers and ranchers using cover crops, using animals, growing between grazing in between almond orchards, regenerating the soil. And the heads of the California Almond Board was there, some of the board members and the president, and, and met a lot of really interesting people. We can do this, but we need to focus on it. Unfortunately, today, there's a lot more washing, a lot less green when it comes to where we're focused on. And the irony, as I mentioned before, most environmental organizations do not understand ecology. They don't understand natural systems. They're usually even afraid to talk to people who know anything about it. They just want to blame cows and oil companies. And But the thing is, they're paid by Wall Street and wealthy foundations who have portfolios full of Bayer and Monsanto and Exxon and Pharma. Every major environmental organization is captured. It's so bizarre. They parrot this, cows are bad. They never talk about the biodiversity collapse of insects and birds. They all focus on wolves and things. And I've called them out in different articles, especially the Sierra Club and 350.org, which is a well-known, they're good people. I've talked to them. But when you talk to them, it's like, is there anybody there? They should just call themselves 450.org. The environmental organization, their plan is to move us to 450. I don't know what that is. What is 450? It's like we're at 420 parts per million in CO2, and we used to be at 410, and now we're going to 422. The plan that they said is oil and gas is bad, oil and coal, don't drill, and solar and wind and EVs are good. End of subject. That's what the climate movement in the United States and Europe has said for decades. Yeah, oil bad and green energy good, basically. And maybe they'll say a little, yeah, we should protect forests and stuff. And they'll have all sorts of things. And how many environmental organizations are going, don't buy a second car, get a bicycle. Why did the Biden administration and the Democratic Party just pass unanimous from their vote to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on solar and wind and electric cars? And then they took out the $10 billion for electric bikes Electric bikes are a phenomenal way for transportation, especially whether it's rural or urban. And it's a great way, saves energy. And we hardly even focus on it. It's all back to not that solar and wind isn't good. I mean, we need to do more of that. But and the other irony is, is when you actually look and see how much minerals, rare minerals we need, whether it's copper or cobalt or lithium to power solar and wind and electric cars. And they're working on some things that don't involve lithium, graphene graphite and other things. Still, we're going to need a lot of these minerals. We don't have enough minerals. We have 20% of the amount of copper that we're going to need in the next 20 years. And it takes seven to 14 years. They never even bothered to calculate that. They had these announcements. State of California, Gavin Newsom said, I've met Gavin and actually raised money for him because I knew he was going to become governor. And we wanted, and I spent time with him and others in experts kiss the ground about regenerative agriculture. And so he's been doing some good things for agriculture compared to most Democrats, which they're more focused on other issues. He said, we're not going to allow any gas powered cars to be sold by 2035. And then five days later, they told people, don't plug in your cars. Well, I live here in Santa Cruz County, and we've seen it happen where essentially PG&E has said, we have enough energy for air conditioning or electric cars, but not both. That's grid problems that we're ultimately going to work through. But the reality is that it's we're far behind where we need to be. 
And there now are plans to both melt permafrost to get at rare earth minerals. And the most recent proposal I saw was drilling into our seabeds to get at rare earth minerals. I'm always an advocate for the ocean. I worry about the fallout when we start to approach undertakings like that that are vast and destructive to the seafloor and ultimately think that we have to come up with something better. Like, don't we have enough bright minds working on this to ultimately come up with a better solution than melting permafrost and drilling into seabeds? Yes, we we need to reduce our lifestyle and our consumption, but that's not what the Sierra Club or 350.org, Environmental Defense Fund, or NRDC, or all these groups, that's not what they tell people in newsletters. Matter of fact, one environmental group was Sierra Club, like six, 7,000 people watched it. And they said, they watched our film. They were blown away. They said, we've never heard the idea of this. Like how many newsletters the Sierra Club sent out? And it's not like the Sierra Club's a bad group. They're just in this group think. And I worked with them to protect California Redwood Forest 30 years ago and worked closely with them. And they were one of the groups that didn't sell out. There's also groups like National Audubon, which is actually working with ranchers. And they started up a program. There's this really cool African-American gentleman that that works with ranchers in the Midwest. And he's really created this whole program for Audubon initially. So it's so there's people doing some good things there. But let's talk about oceans for a bit. I'm very a big fan of healthy oceans and love the oceans. And I wrote an article about the fact that Houston, we have a problem, our ocean acidification. It's because all this excess carbon is going in the oceans and it's becoming acidic. The microscopic plankton, their skeletal structure is dissolving. And if we fast forward into what the carbon level is going to be at the current rate by 2035, there is no plankton in the ocean at that point. Instead of burning fuels to make plastics, we can make here as a straw from Lollyware, a company that I know the the founder, C. Bergani, um, amazing company. And this is made out of kelp and it composts. And so this is a new thing made out. Of, and they can also make other plastics. So they're working on this. There's another company called Primary Ocean that is working with giant kelp that grows here in, on the West Coast and turning that into fertilizer to feed the soil. So we need to learn to reforest the oceans. We've lost 99% of the kelp forests in California in Oregon and Washington. Well, that's largely because of biodiversity loss, right? And the shrinking territory of the sea otter, because the sea otter eats the urchins, and then you can have, ultimately, the seaweed can reattach to the seafloor and expand its reach. I don't know how many people are aware of this, but more than 50% of the oxygen we breathe comes from algae and kelp. All these species of macroalgae and microalgae that are growing around the planet, they give us our oxygen. They're (laughs) critically important. We need to grow more of it. And the Department of Energy put out a grant to look at where's the optimal place to grow more kelp through kelp farming. So that's starting to go on here in the West Coast. The other thing is, is by removing urchins, and there's a group called the Waterman's Alliance. They're removing urchins and getting the kelp to come back much more and bringing the abalone back. There's literally, in Sonoma County alone, there's a billion urchins. Yeah. And in Santa Barbara, I've been a scuba diver for most of my adult life. And I've dove all over California from Monterey Bay all the way south into Mexico and ultimately find that, for instance, you'll see these explosions of the purple urchin all along the coast of Santa Barbara area and also sea hares, like a ton of sea hares, but it looks like barren. There isn't much life there anymore because of this explosion of the purple urchin in particular. 
also conceiving as if they reintroduce otter in these pockets, they may even be able to restore the kelp forest off the coast of Oregon to its once thriving conditions, because even there, there's been loss because it's a shrinkage of the territory of the sea otter who loves to eat those purple urgents. They were hunted, especially the Russians started to hunt those back in the 1840s and 50s for the pelt. We definitely need to take care of the ocean more. I want to talk a little about our agroforestry projects. Right on. That was next on my list. I understand that you're doing some incredible work in the global south, planting food forests, which is a topic I love. Please talk to us about that. A little over a year ago with my co-founder, Hannah Eckberg from the Abundant Earth Foundation, we formed agroforestry regeneration communities. We're a network of community-based agroforestry putting in food forests. Food forests, it's a very simple way using a variety of such as basically nitrogen fixing trees, which it's your own factory of nitrogen. It's in nature. It replaces bags of fertilizer with green leaves. We plant those and other fruit trees and other crops. Our work is in Guatemala and then also in East Africa. And Guatemala is with the contour lines. If anybody's going to Antigua, Guatemala, they have a center we've opened there. And not only are we growing, we give farmers, we work with the very smallest farmers, people who have, they have dirt floors, they, many of them don't have bank accounts, and people who've been essentially ignored and demonized and basically really harassed for the last 300 years through colonialists and now neo-colonialist policies. And they're so grateful when they learn that someone wants to, to work with them. And I'm the person who really helps kind of bring some resources and some best practices and, and introduce people together. We were recently able to get a $400,000 grant from One Tree Planted to do this work. So in Guatemala, and we train them. We also do uh, row crops in between, alley crops, between nitrogen-fixing trees and the avocados and fruit trees and mangoes and citrus. We'll grow cassava and ginger and turmeric and pineapple, sugarcane. And with a cassava, we've turned that into a flower now. And so we're making a gluten-free like jackfruit pizzas in Antigua. Wasn't cassava the root of tapioca? Is that correct? Tapioca is from cassava, yeah. Cassava is one of the most important crops in, in the world. And we also grow a lot of that in uh, Malawi. We have a project we've been supporting in Malawi is, is growing very rapidly with the Permaculture Paradise Institute. And they're located in central Malawi. We've trained over 1,200 farmers in five days around permaculture and agroforestry. We just trained 65 this week and a good portion are women. And a lot of these farmers there, ironically, whether it's in Guatemala or in Malawi, the main crop they grow is maize and they don't grow anything else. Just that's it. We take them instead of doing that, we introduce agroforestry. If you're still going to grow a bunch of maize, just plant glitoceria, which is a nitrogen fixing tree our fertilizer tree without running on today's sunlight, not yesterday's sunlight. We plant it every five meters. They have a big corn crop. Before they're going to plant the corn the next season, they just coppice it, chop it a bit. All those leaves are high nitrogen, powers the corn. Then as the corn grows up, then the tree grows and it gives it some partial shade, which is very helpful. And then one of the things we do is we tell all the farmers, a lot of these farmers have lived, they have outdoor showers. They sometimes will carry water a mile away just to get it. And uh, we plant banana trees so the excess, the gray water from the showers grows banana trees. We've recently expanded to southern Malawi. Malawi has 18 million people. It's just kind of interesting. Both Malawi and Guatemala have 18 or 19 million people. The number one crop they grow is maize. They've both been pressured from the federal government, from the United States, from the IMF, from the World Bank, from the United Nations to use chemical fertilizers, from Bill Gates, 
from this World Economic Forum. You just go down all these letters supported by environmental groups. Environmental groups are attacking cows, not dealing with the chemical fertilizers, trying to deal with first world problems, but not dealing with the fact that there's 500 million smallholder farmers. Both those countries then can just transition to agroforestry, working with nature. So we've expanded that program. When there's a drought, they get much better yields. And remember, these farmers, they're one harvest away from starvation. Whereas those of us in first world countries like the US or Europe, you know, we're 10 harvests away from starvation. We just don't know it yet for many, not everyone. You can only destroy our soils. You know, the number one export of the United States by tonnage is topsoil, billions of tons a year, but just kind of give people orders. So we need to help our soil here, but we also need to help in the global South because our lifestyle our wealthy lifestyle, we can get on planes and have iPhones and things because we've been taking resources from the global south. Those of us in the global north can live a hundred year blowout of material resources on the planet. Going back to Malawi for a moment, I met this Irish aid worker has been working in, in Malawi and he's on an island called Chissy Island. And it's, there's 4,000 people in this island. It's a remote island on the second largest lake in Malawi, in the southern Malawi. There's leopards, there's monkeys, and he's really committed to helping the people and education and better food systems. I was kind of inspired by what he was going to do. I said, let's help. And so we took two of their people, a man and a woman, and some of them had never, one of them I don't think had ever left the island. We took them 300 miles away by bus, strange place, still in their country, taught them all about permaculture. We're now going to recruit 20 more. And they told all their friends, we visited and the chief said, yeah, we like this. You know, it's very remote. And the average income is barely a couple hundred dollars a year. And so we're going to teach them about permaculture and agroforestry. We're going to do a program for their kids. And then interestingly, somebody from Switzerland, an NGO, reached out to us and says, we've identified Malawi as a country we want to focus on education. And we really like what you're doing. I just talked to them. We're going to maybe we're looking at teaching the kids there about how to grow trees and provide them trees and plant. And we're going to do the same at the Permaculture Paradise Institute. In central Malawi, where we've taught 1,200 farmers, I said, if you drew a, a circle 30 kilometers out, about 12 miles, just in a circle, what percentage of the farmers will have taken your training? And Mr. Biswick said, 5%. He said, for a little more, by the end of this year, it'll be 10%. 10% of the farmers, and most of them, when they take the class, the five-day class training, then they agree to train nine other farmers. This week, we trained 65 farmers, which means we're going to have 650 farmers. And then we have extension agents that go around and teach these people. Well, and I think one of the things that we don't, I think, understand enough out here in the West is that going from a monocropping to an agroforestry method will ultimately mean that they're harvesting around the year some sort of a crop, which then protects them. Not only do they get more nutrients that are available in their local diets, if one crop fails, they've got seven or eight others. They've been stunted, their growth. And remember, these policies, who makes the loans to the governments? Who goes to Africa and says that they should be using chemical fertilizers? Bill Gates. Who funds all of this? USAID. Americans are in denial. These are crimes against humanity. These are not good things. And yet we hide under the banner of I'm a Democrat. Well, Donald Trump's president, I'm a Republican. We wouldn't do that. Where is the ability to see with open eyes and information? We've become so tribal, so disconnected from reality that the nutrition is so much better. 
we're planting over in Malawi, you know, yams and cassavas. There's all sorts of native fruits and berries. Most of them are, have disappeared when they just fence it off so the animals don't come and eat it. They get all this fruit back. Like amazing. They don't even have to plant it. It just comes back. When he brings people through the site, it's amazing. What my role is, is I just find these change agents. We back a bunch of them and then some of them, it just doesn't, they end up not delivering as much. With $10 million, we could transform Guatemala. We could transform Malawi. And yet we have so few organizations showing up. It's like, I'm just one guy with some friends we're supporting on a small scale. And we've already planted 5,000 food forests. Our goal is to plant 100,000 food forests by 2027. And my buddy Malawi, he says he's going to do 100,000 food forests just in Malawi. We need definitely need more resources. We need more support. We continue down the road. And I like to say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with many. And remember, if you look at a forest, are there bears spreading synthetic fertilizers in the forest? Is a forest dynamic? Does it grow very well? Is there irrigation in forests? Literally, that's when we tell farmers, we're going to model the forest and we literally grow water. We can take areas that are dry, destitute, the soil's washing away. We don't plant trees right there, right at the start. We plant grasses and other shrubs. And then over time, it starts to bring back the water. We can regenerate the earth. We can make it truly the garden. The question is, can we navigate the greatest distance in the world? As one indigenous elder told me from Greenland once, he said, John, the, the greatest distance in the world between humanity's heart and humanity's brain. That's really where we're at today. We have all the solutions that are available for us and some we still need to work on, but we really need to work on just being open. And I constantly learn what I thought was true 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Maybe wasn't. I had to go. Maybe I was wrong. I mean, isn't that the truth? You have to learn. Maybe I could listen. I see so many people. I see so many millennials lecture me. I've been at this for 40 years and they're lecturing me and they've never been to a farm and a ranch. We literally have experts all over the United States and Europe in food and they never go to visit farms and ranches. And they're the ones to convince the Biden administration to give $2 billion for fake cellular meat and nothing for the ranchers. We could talk about that on a whole different podcast where we talk about the crazy ideas coming out of Silicon Valley, like air protein made by microbes or chicken grown in a Petri dish. And so much money is going to these ideas, which are ultimately, it's another iteration of an extractive view on how we build things and reductionist as opposed to collaborative. We're not regenerating our systems. We're creating some new microcosmic tool that is attractive to investors, but which may not do anything originally intended and could have consequences that we haven't really thought through yet. You're right. I'll give you an example is Beyond Meat. They don't even include transportation in their cost of goods. They have negative margins. Their cost of goods is twice what it costs for regular meat. They have less than six quarters of cash. They're likely to be delisted from the stock market and basically sold off or bankrupt, but they owe a billion dollars. So it's going to go into bankruptcy court. That's going to be an example. Most companies that have been funded by Wall Street and Silicon Valley in the fake meat space will close their doors in 2024 because they just lose money. It was all a boondoggle. 
we need to get real. And what people can do individually, how many people have lawns, how many people have yards, and they're spraying all sorts of chemicals. I'm actually working right now in how to make biological fertilizers and biostimulants plant food for homes. And that's a new enterprise that I'm working on right now. So I'm kind of in the R&D process, talking to people all over. Literally, people can take care of, and you can grow some veggies, some herbs on your deck inside your house. Go to the farmer's market. Another thing that's important to do for your own personal health is do the plank. I really recommend everybody, if they'll just do the yoga plank every day for 30 seconds, you'll be amazing what will happen 30 to 60 days. Now, some people have a yoga practice, but or walking is really good. And just to describe what a plank is, for somebody who doesn't know. Like you're on the ground, laying on the ground, and you're up on your elbows, like in the prayer position. And it's basically like a push-up, but you're static. You're just staying in place. Yeah. And I've had people lose 10 pounds in six weeks doing that. I've heard stories of improved digestion, specifically only from that one act. And then the other thing I want to say, is I got a call from a gentleman, Mr. Bielman, I think. He's been researching mushrooms for 50 years. One of the things they found is there's a rare amino acid called ergothion, I think. They call it ERGO. It's kind of a shorthand. And turns out that it has a huge impact on our health. And in agriculture, regenerative crops grown without tilling have a much higher level than degenerative or even organic. That the American consumption is one-fifth the level of what it is in Italy and Japan. And uh, mushrooms and miso are really good sources of it. And not the button mushrooms, but like the shiitake mushrooms and oyster mushrooms and lion's mane. That's a simple thing is just learning about that and eating more regenerative foods, eating more mushrooms. And of course, omega-3s, Nativa Health Pioneer, hemp seed and hemp oil. And and I know you're active in in that. And omega-3s are such an important thing in our diet. You know, we dove deeply into the story of rice with the founders of Lotus Foods and their regenerative agricultural certified products. Your friends of mine. Great. Yes. They got to talk about the fact that the rice that is grown this way has more phytonutrients nuttier, richer flavor. The the varietals are able to grow with less water, giving more crop per drop. I mean, all of that plays in to your nutrition profile. I also like to point out specifically with mushrooms, there is research that shows that just putting your mushrooms out in the sun, direct sunlight for just a few minutes actually increases their levels of vitamin D. So it's another way to get healthy vitamin D3 into your system, which is of course, immunoprotective, very healthy for you. And of course, to your point, doing things like consuming an omega-3 supplement like those produced by Orlo Nutrition every day supports your long-term health, supports your gut health, your brain health. I mean, we don't get enough of the healthy fats here in the West. We need to rebuild how we eat, what we consume, support those regenerative agriculture movements that are around the globe taking on big systems. We have to talk about it more. We ultimately have to commence this conversation, recommence it over and over as we're sitting here battling over what to do with the Colorado River and how much alfalfa is going to be able to be grown this year because it's such a water hog, which then, of course, impacts farming and available resources there. These are complex systems. Water use is an immense issue. Regenerative agriculture is part of the solution because You can get more water to stay in the soil so plants can grow. I mean, this is a no-brainer, right? Yeah, health begins in the soil. And with healthy soil leads to healthy plants, healthy plants, healthy animals, healthy people, healthy climate, healthy ocean. 
It's all connected. We are living in an ecosystem. We have to stop thinking about it like just the inputs and controls. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, John. This has been my absolute pleasure. Great to be here, Karina. And thank you for what you do in the world. And let's regenerate. As we think about today's discussion, I want to invite you to do a couple of things. For one, I think everyone should go and watch that film, Kiss the Ground on Netflix. It is somewhat entertaining, also just highly educational. You'll find yourself thinking about what you can do differently and even supporting those local farmers in your communities. Going to the grocers, sure, but perhaps going to that farmer's market first. To find out more about John and his work, you can always reach out to me directly via orlonutrition.com. We will have complete show notes there. And also what I will counsel you to do is check out our show notes. I'm going to include direct links to John's work with all of the many not-for-profits that he's involved with in this agroforestry space and also with regenerative agriculture. Thank you for joining us on this journey. If you have questions, please reach out via social channels at Orlo Nutrition or send me an email directly to hello at orlonutrition.com. As we close today's show, I hope you'll raise a cup of your favorite beverage with me as I say my closing words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or. 